All right, as Gino said, we're in Ezekiel chapter 40, 40. We'll look at verses 6 through 49. A man with a measuring rod in his hand takes Ezekiel on a tour of the future millennial temple. It's none other than the Lord Himself. Commentator John Gill writes of this man, says, there was a man, one in human form, not a created angel, but the Messiah, the builder and owner of the city and temple, whom it was proper the prophet should have a view of, and by whom he was to be made acquainted with the several parts and dimensions of the building. He's called a man, not that he was a mere man, but the eternal God, or otherwise he would not have been fit to be the architect or builder of such a structure, nor as yet was he really man, but is so-called because it was determined he should, and it was agreed by him that he would become man, and it was foretold as a certain thing. And besides, he often appeared in human form before his incarnation, as he now did, being most suitable to the prophet and making himself more familiar to him. Hence, our title tonight is Measuring with the Ruler. Get it? It's kind of a play on words. Ooh, ah, yeah. You'll appreciate that someday. Our devotional theme for the remaining chapters of Ezekiel is that God is an amazing builder. Whether it's a structure on the earth like the millennial temple described in these chapters or your mansion in heaven, no detail is overlooked and the craftsmanship is perfect. If you're like me, you might get lost in the long, drawn-out description of the temple. If you do, remind yourself that God is putting the same effort into your heavenly home and in the meantime into building you as His temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and as us as His corporate temple. Now looking over these nine chapters, they outline as follows. From chapter 40, verse 1 into chapter 43, we have a description of the millennial temple. Millennial means, uh, it's from millianum, it's the Latin for thousand years it is the future 1,000-year period of time that you read about in Revelation uh, chapter 20 uh, after Jesus Christ has returned to the earth in His second coming. He establishes this kingdom. Then chapters 43 through 46 describe the worship of the millennial temple. And then the remainder of the book, chapters 47 and 8, describe the new apportioning of land to the tribes of Israel uh, who will be living in the land at that time. And so we start here with a detailed description of the temple and we begin with the east-facing gate in verse 6. Then he went to the gateway which faced east and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway which was one rod wide and the other threshold was one rod wide. Each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits and the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule of the inside gate was one rod. He also measured the vestibule of the inside gate, one rod. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and the gate post, two cubits. The vestibule of the gate was on the inside. In the eastern gateway were three gate chambers on one side and three on the other. The three were all the same size. Also, the gate posts were of the same size on this side and that side. He measured the width of the entrance to the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. There was a space in front of the gate chambers, one cubit on this side and one cubit on that side. 
The gate chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. Then he measured the gateway from the roof of one gate chamber to the roof of the other. The width was 25 cubits as door faces door. He measured the gate post, 60 cubits high in the court, all around the gateway extended to the gate post. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the vestibule of the inner gate was 50 cubits. There were beveled window frames in the gate chambers and in their intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around and likewise in the vestibules. There were windows all around on the inside and on each gate post were palm trees. A cubit, I'm told, is approximately 18 inches. A hand breadth, which we don't get too much in this section, but we'll see, we've seen it before and we'll see it again, is approximately three and a half inches. It's the length of your hand there. And a rod ends up being about 12 feet. When you first read this, you find it odd that these measurements are not more precise. Uh, you, you would think that they would be right down to the millimeter. Uh, and, but I was thinking about that and I realized I've been around enough master craftsmen to understand that measuring can, uh, I hope you understand, it can become more of an art uh, with some people. I was always amazed that my dad, who as a master mechanic, could look at a bolt from across a room and tell whether it was metric or SAE and exactly what size it was. He would tell me to go to the roll away and get a certain wrench. I couldn't even find the wrench and it was marked with, you know, the right sign. They were always put away properly. And he would tell me, you know, go over there and get a 44 metric or whatever. I can't even remember what they were and stuff. And then he'd yell at me and I have issues over that. But anyway, (laughs) no, he didn't really. Uh, A lot of contractors, though they still measure twice and cut once, often can just eyeball something and get it right. Uh, and and uh, I'm always amazed. Uh, tile cutters are like, when guys do tile, not only do they have to measure, they have to measure upside down and backwards. Uh, uh, maybe you could do that. But, you know, I, I, can, I can't ever get anything just right. I figured grout will take care of the rest of it, you know. <laughs> I, about the only thing I used to do is hang drywall. And uh, that's easy because... You can just put all kinds of mud in the, you can have five inch joints, you know, and just keep filling that stuff with mud. And so I'm not really a, a craftsman, but there are craftsmen. And though measuring is important, uh, you know, there doesn't need to be precise measuring. It, from our point of view, it's approximately a rod or a cubit or a hand breadth. The Lord knows, of course, exactly the measurements and he is a master craftsman. Now, in chapter 44, we're going to learn that this is the gate through which the Lord will enter the temple, and afterwards it will remain shut. No one else ever uses that gate. It is strictly for the glory of the Lord to enter the temple. We read that on each gatepost there were palm trees. That means there were engraved palm trees. And as we go through this section, you're going to see a lot of palm trees. Why palm trees? Well, let me read this entry from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. This is their Uh, shot at why palm trees are there. Branches of palms have been symbolically associated with several different ideas. A palm branch is used in Isaiah 9, 14, and 15 to signify the head or the highest of the people. Palm branches appear from early times to have been associated with rejoicing. On the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Hebrews were commanded to take branches of palms and other trees and rejoice before God. The palm branch still forms the chief feature of uh, something called the lullaby, 
carried daily by every pious Jew to the synagogue during that feast. Later, it was connected with the idea of triumph and victory. Simon Maccabeus entered the Acre at Jerusalem after its capture, uh, we're told, with thanksgiving and branches of palm trees and with harps and cymbals, vials and hymns and songs because they destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. The same idea comes out of the use of palm branches by the multitudes who escorted Jesus to Jerusalem and also in the vision of the great multitude which no man could number standing before the Lamb arrayed in white robes with palms in their hands. And so uh, if you go to various resources, concordances and Bible dictionaries and all, they just kind of give a compilation of all the places palm uh, branches and palm trees occur and you come up with all of these various ideas about headship and rejoicing and, and the Messiah and all of that. Whatever else the palm may symbolize, and it symbolizes, I'm sure, many, many things, to me it's the engraving that catches my attention. Uh, because you're reading about all these measurements, there's this door in this area, and it was this long and this wide, and here's how it was, and then interjected you get this description of a beautiful palm that is engraved, and it reminds me that the temple is functional, but it's also something beautiful. And so the Lord is building a functional temple, but He's also building something beautiful. Now, as I was thinking about this, I realized that the church throughout history has had a hard time balancing function and beauty. We're in a pendulum swing right now in which it is popular, especially among evangelical churches, to have the plainest possible warehouse-style building that is mostly functional and not beautiful at all. Comfortable, yes, but not beautiful. Now, it seems funny to say that a lot of churches, Calvary among them, you start in buildings like that because that's all that's available. You know, you, you meet in an abandoned warehouse or a YMCA or uh, something like that. You know, some crazy building. Not necessarily by choice, but by necessity. You need a, something that will function uh, for a church building. Uh, and, uh, and then you have the hope that someday you might, you know, get into a building that's a little bit more appropriate. Uh, and so it's funny to me that the evangelical church, by and large, is trying to get out of pretty buildings, and when they have an opportunity to build something, they build a giant warehouse. Uh, and the theory behind it, and, and maybe it works, um, is that uh, people don't want to come to a church anymore, they, but they're, they're okay going to a warehouse uh, because they don't, they're not intimidated by that. And so the more your church looks like Home Depot, uh, the the more you're going to attract people. You know that kind of a thing. And I just think it's a pendulum swing in that direction. It, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just what happens in the life of church. I mean, when I first got saved back in the 70s, we were over at more of the Crystal Cathedral kind of a swing. You know, where the, it was just of this amazing ornate building, whatever you want to say about the Crystal Cathedral in Fullerton, it's beautiful, uh, you know, and so you had that kind of building, and now you swung all the way over to uh, a warehouse, uh, a Home Depot kind of a thing. Now, since God is such an elaborate builder, why do we assume it is more spiritual, and I think we do sometimes, we assume it's more spiritual to build something that lacks beauty? 
Uh, I, I really, and I'm not saying that we don't have trouble with this. I mean, you know, I don't know how much you should spend on a chandelier or if you should have a chandelier, but this is the kind of issue that we have to struggle with because it's not necessarily more spiritual to be more plain. When God builds something, he builds it pretty extravagantly. He builds it beautifully. He does it, I guess, economically uh, from his point of view, uh, but we, we need to be aware of this. Both function and form end up being important, and it's up to us in each generation and in each congregation to try and keep that in a balance and in a perspective. And so while function is important, so is form, and so we want to we want to struggle with that and say, hey, we want to do something, we want to build something, we want to make something, we want to refurbish something, but we also want it to be as beautiful as possible. We don't, it doesn't need to be ornate, it doesn't need to be gaudy, we don't need to go crazy, uh, but you know, the Lord, if, if He's the pattern, what He does is just really beautiful. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, I mean, I'll be happy to go to heaven, but my, you know, no matter what my mansion looks like in heaven, but it, it's not going to look like Home Depot, I'll tell you that right now. I mean, the Lord isn't spending 2,000 years doing pop-up walls and some shelving. Uh, you know, that's not what he's all about. And so, so we just, you know, just think, okay, uh, you know, form, function, let's mold those together. Now, verses 17 through 37 describe the outer and inner courts of the temple. See if you can follow this description. He says, then he brought me into the outer court and there were chambers and a pavement all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateways corresponding to the length of the gateways This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubits toward the east and the north. On the outer court was also a gateway facing north, and he measured its length and its width. Its gate chambers, three on this side and three on that, its gate posts and its archways, had the same measurements as the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its windows and those of its archways and also its palm trees had the same measurements as the gateway facing east. It was ascended by seven steps and its archway was in front of it. A gate of the inner court was opposite the northern gateway just as the eastern gateway and he measured from gateway to gateway 100 cubits. After that he brought me toward the south and there a gateway was facing south and he measured its gate posts and archways according to these same measurements. There were windows in it and in its archways all around like those windows. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Seven steps led up to it and its archway was in front of them. And it had palm trees on its gate posts, one on this side, one on that side. There was also a gateway on the inner court facing south and he measured from gateway to gateway toward the south 100 cubits. Then he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway. He measured the southern gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements. There were windows in it and in its archways all around it. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. There were archways all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits wide. Its archway faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gate posts, and going up to it were eight steps. Can't get my page to turn. Wow, this is serious. There it is. 
It's my new iPad and I'm not used to it. And he brought me to the inner court facing east. He measured the gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements. And there were windows in it and in its archways all around it. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court and palm trees were on its gate posts on this side and on that side. And going up to it were eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gateway and measured it according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways. It had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its gate posts faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gate posts on this side and on that side. And going up to it were eight steps. How many of you really like palm trees? Raise your hand. You're, you're a big fan of palm trees? I don't really like palm trees. I don't get palm trees. Uh, maybe in Florida, somewhat in Southern California, uh, Hawaii, knock yourself out, you know, and stuff. But uh, we had, when we bought our house, we had this enormous out-of-control palm tree. You know, and they're always, they're always planted in the weirdest wrong places, you know. Uh, it was just right, just kind of there in the front of our house. And I think one million pigeons lived, lived in it, you know. And, uh, I, and you know, and then you've got to trim them all the time. They've got, you know, 100,000 palm leaves that are just hanging there. And rats and mongooses are living in those. And it's just crazy. And so my neighbor is a tree guy. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so I approached him. I say, hey, can you can you trim you know the palm tree? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know. And we got to talking because we're neighbors. And he said, and we're talking about a price and all that. And and he and he just jokingly said it'd be cheaper to just cut it down. Cha-ching! <laughs> really? You know? So and man, I watched him. It was great. They just felled that thing and chopped it. In about a half hour, that thing was gone. You know? They ground down the stump, sort of. You never really get rid of the stump of a palm tree. I remember one time. At our house in San Bernardino, uh, we had a palm tree. It was only about six feet tall, uh, and, but it was, again, it was in a place. You know what happens to palm trees? They get planted by birds, places where you don't want them. And then you see, and you say, oh, look, a little palm tree's growing up there. And then before you know it, like overnight, it's six feet tall, and you can't just pull it out anymore. And so I remember my dad and my brothers, they're trying to get this palm tree out. My dad finally had to borrow a tow truck to pull this thing out of the ground and carry it away. And, and uh, it's crazy. So anyway, I'm just not a big fan of palm trees. I just, I don't like them uh, at all. Uh, but I'm sure I'll be a big fan of palm trees in the future because the Lord seems to like them. Now, if you're an architect, you've calculated from all these measurements that the sanctuary will form a square of 500 cubits. The next chapter... Uh, or excuse me, the chapter next describes the chambers for the priests who are going to serve in this temple. It says in verse 38, there was a chamber and its entrance by the gatepost of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway were two tables on this side, and two tables on that side, on which to slay the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Uh, at the outer side of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, there were two tables. On the other side of the vestibule of the gateway, there were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high. 
And on these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the tables. Outside the inner gate were the chambers for the singers in the inner court, one facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, This chamber which faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. The chamber which faces north is for the priests who have 100 uh, cubits wide, four square. The altar was in front of the temple, and he measured the court 100 cubits long and 100 cubits wide, four square. The altar was in front of the temple. Now, we dealt in our previous study with the subject of animal sacrifices in the future temple. In fact, that was the bulk of what we talked about last time we were together. There definitely will be animals sacrificed in the future. They in no way take away from the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Old Testament sacrifices did not save you. They did not permanently atone for your sins. Otherwise, like you read in Hebrews, then why do them all the time? Why have daily and annual sacrifices if they were able to save you and take away your sins? No, they showed you the need for a Savior who would be the Lamb of God come to take away your sins. People in the millennial earth, you have to remember that when the Lord comes back, there will be human survivors of the Great Tribulation who will go into this kingdom as human beings in their regular human bodies and they will have just as much need to be shown the horrors of sin and the need for um, a better iPad. Okay, I'm going to try this one more time. There it is. Uh, they'll, they'll need to... <laughs> they'll need to have a Savior and they'll need to understand... The, the horrors of sin. Only in their case, they'll be looking back to the cross rather than forward to it. And think too of the Jews in the millennial kingdom. You know, when the Lord comes back, every living Israelite will be saved. Believing Jews of that era will have never celebrated any memorial of Jesus Christ's death on their behalf. We have one. We're going to celebrate it tonight. Communion, albeit it's bloodless. Uh, it doesn't involve animal sacrifice. Uh, but it's nevertheless a memorial of shed blood. The millennial sacrifices of animals will serve as a memorial celebration for saved Jews of what their Messiah did on Calvary for them. Now, I'm still not very excited about animal sacrifices. Uh, it still strikes me as uh, odd, uh, but I understand the need for them, and I don't see that they take anything away uh, from the glory of the Lord. In fact, they... Uh, as we talked about the last time we were together, um, all the more in more perfect conditions will people need to know how horrible it was that Jesus had to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Now, in this section, the mention of the sons of Zadok, who are the priests, that's pretty important. In First Kings, you learn that the Lord promised the sons of Zadok that they would serve in the future temple. Their mention here by Ezekiel tells us this is a real future temple, not some symbolic or allegorical one. God is going to keep his promise to uh, Zadok, the one that he made uh, in the time of David. Now, the chapter ends describing the vestibule, or we would say the porch. Verse 48, Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple, and he measured the doorpost of the vestibule, 
five cubits on this side and five cubits on that side. And the width of the gateway was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits. And by the steps which led up to it, there were pillars by the doorposts, one on this side and another on that side. Commentators like to point out that many of the details of this future temple, and especially this porch area, they seem to resemble Solomon's temple that you read about in the Old Testament. David is the one who planned that temple, and then he turned the plans over to his son Solomon to build. If the millennial temple resembles Solomon's temple, we can be sure that God isn't the one copying the design. I mean, God didn't look down and say, hey, that's some good, sweet temple building down there. You know, I I don't think I can do any better than that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to copy what David wrote down. No, God is the one who gave David the design uh, and then he passed it on faithfully to his son to implement. Uh, and so I just thought that was kind of a neat detail because we read about David. Gino mentioned a little bit tonight uh, in his summary. Uh, David wanted to build God's temple and, and the Lord, uh, you know, Nathan the prophet said, hey, whatever's in your heart, do it. You know, he spoke out of turn because they hadn't really consulted the Lord. And then the Lord said, no, David, I don't want you to build my temple because you've been a warrior, a man of blood. Uh, Your son will build the temple. Uh, And uh, unlike me, who would get really depressed and discouraged because I couldn't do what I wanted to do for God, David said, all right, that's fine, but I'm going to draw up all of the plans. I'm going to gather all of the materials. I'm going to get money together. When I'm gone and Solomon is here, it'll be a turnkey situation. He'll be able to really he'll be able to put that temple together. And so David dedicated himself to that. And apparently you find out now that you see the millennial temple and what God intended, you understand that God was helping David and speaking to David and giving him that design as they had communion and fellowship with one another. Over the years, I've noticed that Christians like to copy successful designs. Here's what happens. God does a work in and through a certain church. It's usually a local church or an affiliation of local churches. Other churches see it and they want God to do that same work in their church. There's an idea that uh, even among non-Pentecostals, there's an idea that If something's happening in a particular church, in a particular area of the country, uh, and it's not happening just that way here, then the Holy Spirit is over there, and He's not over here. He's he's like, you know, wintering in Florida, uh, and and He's left the building here, or whatever. And so, people look, and they go, you know, I want to see what's happening in Florida, or in Toronto, or in California, or wherever something is happening. I want to see what's happening there, and I want to bring it back to here. Uh, and so they figure out what the other church was doing and they start doing it. A lot of times the pastor or the leader of that church, if, if, it's, a, if it's something really big, uh, they'll get approached by somebody who will say, well, you write down, you know, write a book about what happened you know, and how your church grew and what the Lord was doing, and they do. And then that becomes a bestseller because everybody wants to implement that plan and that program. And I, I believe that in in the cases where this is a biblical program, a biblical plan, that God spoke to those individuals. He said, this is what I want you to do. Uh, And and when you implement this plan of mine, then there'll be blessing in the way that I want to bless you. Uh, And 
uh, I think it would be better for other churches, rather than copying that plan, to just seek the Lord and get their own plan from the Lord. Uh, Because one thing I'm sure of over the years is that God doesn't want every Christian to go to the same church. Uh, There's never going to be one... There is one church universal, but we all have different tastes, different styles, different things that we like and dislike. And I think it's a blessing that God raises up many different churches in a community uh, that are doing different things. Uh, So, you know, having different worship and uh, all those kinds of things so that people can feel comfortable and feel like they're worshiping God in that environment. Uh, And and yet we we always want to copy what someone else is doing and bring it and and then sometimes force it on people and say, hey, this is this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Well, it might be what he's doing somewhere else. It it may not be what he wants to do at all uh, here or where you happen to be. And this happens all the time on a national scale and even on a global scale. Sometimes every few years, the latest book is released touting a program and everyone kind of gets on board with it. As I said, it's not always bad or wrong. Don't read that into it. But if we want to copy a successful design, then you need look no farther than where? The book of Acts. If you want to really say, I I want to be successful, spiritually speaking, from God's perspective, how do I do that? What's the measure? Well, then you go back to the book of Acts and you see that the program was uh, get saved, get filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing and see what Jesus is doing and then tell people about it uh, and just be led by the Holy Spirit. Having begun in the Spirit, continue in the Spirit. Uh, the early church, bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, you know, I mean, they had, they had no church plan. They had no demographics uh, you know, they didn't study statistics. You know, they didn't, they didn't plant churches in the key cities of the region. In fact, you couldn't even get those guys out of Jerusalem. Jesus said to them, you're going to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And they thought, yeah, okay, I guess. We're, we're, we're just in Jerusalem. What do we do now? And the Lord said, well, I'll bring some persecution and you'll have to scatter. How's that? okay. You know, and then they started to move out from there. I'm not saying, you know, to be facetious or that we want to be stupid, but if you want to, you know, the, the, the real church that you want to emulate is the first century church that depended upon the Holy Spirit. And, and I believe that any church, any group of individuals that is waiting on the Lord, depending upon the Holy Spirit, uh, honestly seeking the Lord, they're doing what the Lord wants them to do. And the results, those are going to be the Lord's results. We're the ones that look at uh, structures and numbers and all of those kinds of things and say, oh, that's success. Now I see what success is like. No, I see what success is like when I see a man like Peter who literally weeks before uh, the day of Pentecost was denying Christ. He was afraid of a little servant girl uh, around a fire. And then on the day of Pentecost, he was preaching his heart out. And, and telling people, hey, we're not drunk. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you guys killed Jesus. You're in big trouble. Uh, and thousands of people started to get saved. I see a guy who, you know, weeks earlier was cutting people's ears off, you know, trying to cut his head off and he had the wrong slice and so he couldn't even accomplish that. And then he's walking into the temple 
walking past a, a man that Jesus had left there many times and looking at, fixing his gaze on him and says, hey, I don't have any money to give you, beggar, but in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to stand up. And he does. And he reaches down and he grabs him. And, you know, that, that's the church I want to be. I, I want to be the first century church. And so, you know, uh, it's great if, if a, a church or an affiliation of churches is blessed in a certain way. That's fantastic. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the history of these movements over the years, you know, God blesses different churches in different ways. And, uh, and so we want to be blessed in the way that God wants to bless us, not by copying uh, something that man has done, but by understanding what God wants done. Receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then being witnesses. That's, that's it, really. That's it in a nutshell. So whatever we may adopt, let us never lose sight of the early church and her dependence, a total dependence, really, on the leading and the empowering of God the Holy Spirit. Amen?